couple of weeks away from wrapping up the book of Romans. Uh, I think it'll end up being something like 25 weeks that we've spent in the book, taking a little pause, if you remember. We spent some time looking at the Psalms during the beginning of this year. But we are, uh, this week and then next week, we'll be finishing up this book. Uh, Chapter 15, Paul begins to wind down what has been the major theological conversations he's been having. We've looked at so many of them, these topics of his righteousness, his sovereignty, the way the gospel's implications are lived out in believers' lives. But in chapter 15, Paul begins the transition to what are, for him, more personal matters, more personal plans that lay ahead. As you'll see, Paul has a passion to visit Rome, to which he's writing the letter, so that he can meet them and encourage the Christians that are there. But he also has bigger plans beyond that trip to Rome and a few obligations that he has to deal with before those plans can unfold. Um, This is one of those sections of scripture, if you were really honest for a moment, most of us, you know, you can work through the difficult material of Romans, but when you get to where Paul starts thanking people and laying out travel plans, it's the kind of thing that can feel a little dry and we tend to sort of move past, get to the ending and go on to something else. It's just technical details in this last section about travel plans and itineraries and personal prayer requests, the kind of things that feel easy to skip over. But what it gives us is actually a fascinating look into Paul's life and into the way Paul thought about the challenges he faced as a believer. It's kind of the rubber meeting the road of all of Paul's theological writing and articulation now expressed in how Paul is actually thinking about the days ahead of him. Um, I found myself, as I was reading it this week, really fascinated by the section, but also impressed that we, we have this. <laughs> the Apostle Paul. We have not just his theology, but we have these sections where he talks about what's on his heart and what his passions are and his dream for the future and the challenges he recognizes that are ahead of him and how he's thinking about those challenges. It really is, in many ways, a gift to be able to dive into what is on Paul's heart and mind. So that's what I want to give you. Romans chapter 15. We're going to be picking up where Brad left off, thankful for him speaking last week, in verse 14. So Romans chapter 15, verse 14. I'll read it to you from the ESV. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elysium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. 
At present moment, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. What Paul lays out in that chapter, as you probably recognize, is a series of plans, his itinerary, as they relate to the believers in Rome, but even beyond just those believers in Rome. It's the technical details of what Paul has planned out in the years to come, now wrapping up what is his third missionary journey. Paul starts off by being careful to recognize that he is visiting Rome as a church that has already been established. Paul had not planted the church in Rome, but he was aware of the believers that were there. They had their own history, their own leadership, their own identity. And Paul opens up by acknowledging his goal is not to come and set them straight, but to come and enjoy this testimony of what God has been doing there. He's aware that they're fully capable of instructing one another. Paul's mission, what Paul does with his life, is not to go around to the churches and straighten them out in the Pauline way. Let me tell you what you've got wrong. I'm the Apostle Paul. I'll tell you how you should be doing it right. Instead, he acknowledges that he is not the center of what God is doing in all of these churches. He longs to come to them, to visit them, to be encouraged by what God is doing there. But he acknowledges that he does it so that he can jump off from there into an even greater work, a work in Spain. Paul also acknowledges that before he can do that, he has to do a difficult task of returning to Jerusalem. Paul's interest has always been going and preaching Christ where Christ hasn't been preached. Paul's work throughout the book of Acts had always been to go into new cities and new towns and proclaim Jesus, the gospel, for the first time. But Paul acknowledges that's becoming harder and harder in this area that he's now spent years traveling, itinerating through, and preaching. Verse 23, Paul says, But now, since I no longer have any room for this work in this region, in other words, Paul feels like the gospel is spreading and growing throughout this Asia Minor area he's given so much of his life to. And so Paul has a new passion, a new dream, a new goal for the future. That Paul could use Spain as a base to travel on to the region of Spain. Spain, so far in the biblical account, is uncharted territory. We haven't read throughout the book of Acts any missionary or person who's carried the gospel message that far. Paul had used Antioch, if you remember from the book of Acts, as a base to jump off and reach most of the Mediterranean area. And so now he begins to think about how Rome could serve in a similar manner for missionary trips stretching all across the rest of that European land, all the way to the coast of Spain. The church at Rome could support that work, encourage him in that work, maybe even help fund that work. And so a big part of why Paul has written this letter to the Romans is to establish that link 
that one day he will come and from there continue on into this even bigger work. But the obligation that Paul needs to take care of before he can do that is this collection. Um, If you were with us a few years ago when we preached through the book of Acts, we spent quite a bit of time talking about this work that Paul had on his heart. That he would travel throughout these Gentile churches, raising a fund that he could then return and take to Jerusalem for those who were in trouble. A famine and social pressures had left many of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and Judea in a bind. They were in a real hard situation. And so Paul was committed to raise support from the Gentile churches as a way of showing unity within the church between Jew and Gentile. What better way to demonstrate that unity than for the Gentiles to be a blessing back to Jerusalem who had given them this gospel message. So Paul and his uh, team had been traveling to churches around the region, collecting up these funds. And Paul was now determined to travel with those funds back to Jerusalem to present them to the Christians there in Judea. Once that task was done, then he would return to Rome and on to Spain. That's the itinerary that that section of Romans outlines. But Paul's also not naive about the challenges that this plan includes. He knew that there was incredibly strong opposition to him, both within the church and outside of the church, in Jerusalem. After all, Paul had been one of the great minds, one of the great thinkers of Judaism, Now, having turned to follow Christ, he was a figure of controversy. And even within the Jewish Christian community, his work with Gentiles had made him suspect to many. Paul knows that when he's in places like Rome and Corinth, he's safe from much of that controversy. But stepping foot into Jerusalem, or as he does, the temple itself, is liable to spark controversy that Paul is worried he might not be able to escape from. How much easier would it have been for Paul to just continue heading west? We think that when Paul was writing this letter to the Romans, he was in the city of Corinth, one of the furthest points that he reached away from Jerusalem. Wouldn't it have been easier to make that short jump over to the Italian peninsula, go to Rome, and continue on with his work? Why this risk, this danger of returning to Jerusalem? Surely he could appoint somebody to take the offering and make the point, What about his dream, this work in Spain, right there before him, the closest he would be? Why not continue? Instead, Paul turns and heads back to Jerusalem. That had to have been a hard decision for Paul. Paul, we often think of as a kind of pioneering apostle, breaking new ground, town after town, moving the message of the gospel forward to new places. Um, This last week when Brad preached for me, many of you know I was in South Dakota pheasant hunting. And um, across South Dakota, you hear these stories of how the settlers settled the land. The town we were hunting in is a place called Gettysburg. Uh, The big billboard in front of it says the place where the battle wasn't. (laughs) And the idea was uh, soldiers, Union soldiers, after the Battle of Gettysburg, after the war ended, moved to this unsettled part of South Dakota and created this town and honored their sort of shared experience at Gettysburg by naming it Gettysburg. But it's hard to imagine being out on that land, settlers, families, and wagons rolling up places they had never been and had no clue what to expect and saying, this big, bitter, cold, wind-swept land is the perfect place to build a house and start a farm and raise a family. But they did it. They went west not knowing what they would encounter or what it would mean or how difficult it would be, and they carved out civilization in those places. And so too, Paul was this kind of pioneer. 
constantly pressing into new places, not sure what it would mean, the challenges ahead of him, but drawn into it by this passion, this potential for what the gospel could do in those unreached places. I think that pioneering work was in Paul's blood. Spain was the next thing that had captured his imagination. Why not press on? Why turn back? Why back to Jerusalem? One of the most moving scenes from Paul's life is recorded in the book of Acts. Paul was meeting with a group of Ephesian elders, Ephesian pastors, while he was on his way home, headed back to Jerusalem, one of the last stops before he would come there. Those elders of the church of Ephesus pleaded with him not to go. They knew the risks that he was under, and they begged Paul, why not stay? Stay where it's safe. Um, You remember that scene from the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was praying. It was evening. Uh, You can actually go to the Mount of Olives still today. There's still olive orchards growing on the side of that hill, and you can stand amongst them and see roughly the place Jesus was probably standing that night. You can look across the valley and over to the Temple Mount. It's not that far of a distance. And without doubt, Jesus would have been able to see the torches of those temple guards, the soldiers, moving towards the hill, probably well aware, Judas being gone, of what was about to unfold when they reached him. In fact, Judas would have to come so close to Christ as to kiss him on the cheek to even identify him in the midst of the darkness with the other disciples around How much easier it would have been for Jesus to simply slip over the Mount of Olives and off into the Judean wilderness. It was the exact same path that David had taken when he was fleeing Jerusalem. But instead, Jesus watched those torches winding closer to him, Judas approaching with his betrayal kiss, and Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, not escaping through the open window that he had, but setting his face towards Jerusalem and accepting what lay ahead. As he prayed, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And so likewise, these Ephesian pastors pleaded with Paul, this is your window of escape. Turn back. Don't go to Jerusalem. Head on towards that dream, that passion you have. Paul told them his mind was made up. He was off to Jerusalem, and he said this to them in Acts 20. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. What will happen to me there, I do not know, except that in one city after another, the Holy Spirit has been warning me that imprisonment and hardship awaits me. Yet I consider my life of no importance to me. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to bear witness to the gospel of God's grace. Paul's in a real predicament at this point. His passion, his calling, preach Christ where he's not been named. Spain, his imagination captured by the possibility of it. But yet this constant testimony of the spirit that what awaits him in Jerusalem is imprisonment. And so Paul continued, in every way I have shown you that by hard work of that sort, we must help the weak and keep in mind the words of our Lord Jesus, who himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had finished speaking, he knelt down and prayed with them all. They were all weeping loudly as they threw their arms around Paul and kissed him, for they were deeply distressed at what he had said, and they knew that they would never see his face again. Then they escorted him to the ship. Just as they all expected when Paul reached Jerusalem and attempted to go up to the temple, 
A riot broke out and he was arrested. It began a series of quasi-trials, shipped around from leader to leader, constantly in chains and in prison, before Paul was finally moved to Rome, ironically, but not as he had imagined, not as a base of operation for a new mission, but instead under house arrest, a prisoner. Tradition holds it that Paul would die there in Rome. I walk you through that history, that story, because we live in a world where we understand the experience that Paul was under. Dreams, passions, visions, things that we hope we will accomplish and achieve in life, and the reality that oftentimes those things don't pan out the way that we had hoped or prayed or longed to see them. We live in a culture that tells us that those dreams define us. We're constantly told to dream bigger, to believe in more. You can be anything you want to be. A few years ago, we went to Disney, and uh, I'll never forget the big laser light show there at the Magic uh, Kingdom. We stay for the night show, and all the people packed together that today you could never do. It'll be socially distanced, but you're shoulder to shoulder with thousands of people and fireworks and lights and this great voiceover that's booming across the show. And uh, I went and looked it up online and wrote it down. This is the voiceover. Each of us has a dream, a heart's desire. It calls to us. And when we are brave enough to listen, bold enough to pursue it, that dream will lead us on a journey to discover who we are meant to be. All we have to do is look inside our hearts and unlock the magic within. Your destiny lies within you. You just have to be brave enough to see it. In so many ways, that is the language of our culture. It's every movie that Disney makes. It's not just for kids. It permeates our own adult thinking. You were made for something, a passion, a dream, a vision, and all you have to do is be brave enough to take it, to believe in it, to live into it. That language has become so much of the language of our church. We baptize these dreams in languages of God's calling and God's will. How easy it is for us to have a vision of our own life and then imagine that that must obviously be what God wants for us as well. Even Paul prays bends his knees and pleads that his plan will play out, that all of this opposition he faces in Jerusalem will not materialize, but his dream of Spain and Rome will come to fruition. Verse 30, Paul asks these Roman Christians to pray with him. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul did not live in a kind of spiritual state in which he said, I refuse to think about the future. All I will ever do is accept what's in front of me today. No, Paul had dreams. Paul had passions. Paul had a plan for what he thought was still ahead of him. He believed, I'm sure, that it was God's plan to carry him on this pioneering work to new places. And he prays adamantly to God that that plan, that passion, will be fulfilled. But the question that I think Paul's life puts before us is, what do we do when those plans don't materialize? What do we do when those prayers aren't answered? After all, Paul as best we know, never fulfilled that dream of preaching in Spain. And though he would come to Rome, it would not be in refreshment and joy, but under house arrest and as a prisoner. It's easy to catch a vision or dream of the future. 
into one way or another turn that goal, that idea, into a standard by which we begin to evaluate God and his faithfulness to us. With this image of what we think God has for us, what we want within our own hearts, our dream before us, everything in life and faith becomes an evaluation of how well that dream, that plan is paying off. If life detours unexpectedly, if your dream fails to materialize, we begin to wonder, why has God not blessed us? Why has God not been faithful to us? Why has God put this dream and passion in my life and not allowed me to have it? Why hasn't he fulfilled the expectations that I have? Do you remember that story from the Gospels where the rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus instructed him to go and sell all of his possessions. And if you remember how the story ended, the man left with his face downcast. Selling all of your possessions is not a requirement to get to heaven. Jesus was not saying that if you own any possession, you will be denied entrance. What Jesus sensed was that this man wasn't willing to sacrifice those things for this next thing he wanted. Jesus called his religious bluff. There were things more important to him than eternal life. What Jesus did was try to force out to demonstrate the true priorities that he was living by. If he couldn't sell those things for eternal life, then clearly those things mattered more to him than life itself. We all know it's kind of a Christian cliche what that prioritization list is supposed to be. God first then family, then my work. You've probably said it or heard it said a million times. But when life fails to deliver what we had expected, oftentimes that prioritization list, we believe if we live it well, will pay off by things going better for us. But when it fails to, who shrugs their shoulders and says, oh, that dream was fourth or fifth on my list anyways, who cares? No, the truth is when the dream doesn't pan out, It forces out the reality of what actually is prioritized in our life. And so often, like that rich young ruler, who was so proud of what he had achieved in good works and deeds, we soon discover that the good works and the deeds and the faithfulness are just our paying forward what we hope to reap in the fulfillment of our own way. The desperation with which we clutch at our dreams, by which we expect God to fulfill them, shows us the real priorities by which we live. Um, The commentator N.T. Wright, who I've read several times as we've worked through Romans, um, he talks about Paul's failed mission to Spain by writing this. Did Paul ever get to Spain? There's no evidence, whatever, that he did. But his desire to do so, and the fact that he wrote Romans as a part of the preparation for such a trip, points out an extremely important lesson for all of us. Perhaps God sometimes allows us to dream dreams of what he wants us to do, not necessarily so that we can fulfill all of them. That might just make us proud and self-satisfied, but so that we will take the first steps towards faithfulness and following him. Could it be that God has priorities bigger than our priorities? Could it be that God's priorities are not just to fulfill our dreams, but to do a work within us that maybe we haven't considered or wouldn't on our own. And could those unfulfilled dreams, even the passion of having dreamed them and wanted them, and then face the reality of them not coming about, be a part of his plan 
for shaping and forming and maturing us into something even greater than we had imagined. Um, this is the point I should pause and say, I know this is a terrible sermon. None of you woke up this morning and said, I would like to go to church this morning, just before the holidays, just before Thanksgiving, and have all of my dreams smashed by the preacher and informed probably they won't pan out and that's God's will. Um, let's go ahead, let, we could just go get the kids and bring them in and I'll go ahead and just break the bad news to them too. You probably won't be president. You probably won't play Major League Baseball. I know it's your dream. Um, my goal today, I promise, is not just to tell you to stop dreaming. I've tried to make the point. Paul was. The goal here is not to live sort of mindless of the future. Just whatever comes, I take it a day at a time. God puts things on our hearts, and oftentimes those things are fulfilled. God encourages us to pray what is in our heart, the passions, the longings we have. Paul himself is doing that. But what I'm struck by is Paul's willingness to live by faith beyond those prayers and beyond that plan for the future. I think it comes through so clear in Paul's words to those Ephesian pastors. Keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus, he told them. It is more blessed to give than to receive. For Paul, I don't think that was ever just about money, just about writing a check. It was about his plans. It was about his identity. It was about his passions and his dreams and his expectations for the future. It is far better to hold those things with an open hand and to sacrifice them for the good of Christ than to receive all of them fulfilled the way you expected. It's better to live with your hands open before God than clutching and constantly clawing at your own way. Or as Paul put it, yet I consider my life of no importance to me. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul's greatest passion was to receive what Christ was doing within him. To be faithful and to live into what God had planned for him. You might not realize it at first, but that is, in fact, a remarkable gift of freedom. The ability to sacrifice things, even things which are meaningful to you. Your life is not defined by whether or not your dreams pan out. Who you are is not determined by how your life goes. Your identity before Christ is not determined by whether or not you can achieve those goals that you set out in the 10-year or 20-year life plan. God's grace is not primarily demonstrated in your life by how many of the prayers you pray that he answers. The real question is one of priorities. Dreams and desires and prayers taken to God in honesty, but a willingness to say, God, not my will be done, but yours. God, I can trust you with even my dreams and passions, knowing that you have more in store for me, more good in store for me than I could dream up on my own. The question I think Paul sets before us is this one. What are you really willing to give up? Do you really believe that life is better the way he has it planned than the way you have it planned? Are you really willing to live, as Paul used the phrase in Romans, as a living sacrifice? Better to give than to receive. Willing to set aside your dream and ambition for the sake of what he is doing and how by his sovereignty he is preparing to use you. Again, it's not a call 
to stop believing, to stop dreaming, to stop thinking about the future. The Spirit itself is one who gives dreams, calls us into new work, sets before us passions and desires. But deeper, it is the willingness to live with an open-handedness that those things will not replace God himself. Though God should slay me, still I will worship him. Do you really believe that it is only those who are willing to lose themselves that actually find themselves in this world? Or as scripture says, for he is no fool who is willing to sacrifice what he cannot keep to receive what he could never otherwise have found. The truth is, I see enough people to convince me that I don't want to live the way this world so often directs me. Desperate, stressed out, anxious, constantly devastated, a roller coaster ride, the joy of something coming true and the crushing defeat of losing it again, constantly questioning God's goodness, God's faithfulness, constantly worried about how things will pan out, constantly desperately praying for myself and my own plans. What I want is to be able to live like Paul, honest before God in all things. God, here's what's on my heart. Here's what I believe you've called me to do. Here's what I think and hope the future looks like. But more passionate about a faithfulness that serves and follows him regardless of what lay ahead. Willing to sacrifice everything if need be for the sake of faithfulness to him. That at the end, I might stand before him that day and hear not, your dreams have come true, but well done, good and faithful servant. An eternity where all that was wrong and lost is made right, where every tear is wiped away, where every pain is restored, where every brokenness is healed, where all things are worked for the good of those who believe. Not because he fulfilled my dream, but because I submitted myself to his goodness and watched all of the ways that he did more and greater than I could have ever imagined. Sometimes losing those dreams, those desires, become just the thing that open our hearts and minds to the possibility of more. That God might be doing something bigger, better, at times harder, but greater than that thing that I was judging and expecting him to fulfill as the better way. Like Paul, we trust, we follow, we give, we live as a sacrifice. And in some ways, I think Paul's prayer ultimately was fulfilled. When Paul prayed and asked those Roman believers to pray with him, what he imagined is that the joy and refreshing he would experience in coming to Rome would be one of his own will and freedom that he would stroll in on his own two feet and they would welcome him in celebration, that they would give and the work would continue. Paul would make it to Rome under house arrest, but it would be in that house arrest that Paul would write some of his most moving letters that we have in the New Testament. And it would be in that house arrest that Paul might live his most important sermon before those Roman Christians who themselves, in the years to come, would face their own persecution and arrest. And in the end, though it may not have been Paul, the gospel spread to Spain. It spread to every part of the known world, to where we sit today. God is doing far more in this message of Romans than most of us could ever imagine. The mysteries of God. 
And where that plan fails to align with ours, we can always have the confidence of knowing that his way is better, higher, for us and by his sovereignty, for all those that he uses us to serve and sacrifice for. And Paul's life, the perfect example of it. Let's close in prayer and we'll worship together this morning.